It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a magic marker. A, a felt pen. It's a mistake. It's a trap. It's a fucking comedy. It's quiet. Maybe too quiet. It's all happening. It's a good day to die. It's a good day to talk about movies. Welcome back. It is a good day to talk to Glenn Triggs. I am your host, Duncan. Joining me, as always, are Gardner. Hello, everyone. And Taran. What's up? Today, we have an interview with writer-director Glenn Triggs, known for his movies Cinemaphobia, 41, Apocalyptic, The Comet Kids, and the soon-to-be-released Dreams of Paper and Ink. This episode will be a little different since we're not discussing just one film, so there won't be much of an opening, not a lot of opening thoughts from us, just a little background and we'll jump into the interview. Also, we won't be having scores at the end because, again, it's not one movie. We talked to Glenn for over an hour and discussed his past films as well as Dreams of Paper and Ink, which is finished and will be released soon. Glenn has a bunch of other films I didn't mention that he's made over the years, a lot of which are available on his YouTube page. All of the films I did mention are available on streaming. And as you'll hear him say in the interview, Apocalyptic and The Comic Kids are also available to be purchased uh, as DVDs. And if, if you're into indie film at all, you should absolutely check out Glenn's YouTube channel. It's got just a wealth of great content on there, behind the scenes, commentaries, everything you could want. Absolutely. He's um, a fan's movie director, by, like for sure. He, he likes he's doing it for us. You know, he enjoys the process and he likes sharing it. And describing him through an interview for sure. Describing him as a writer or director is short selling him, honestly. He's kind of a true Renaissance man. He does write and direct his work, but he also edits it, produces it, and does the sound for all of his movies. He also makes music. He plays the guitar, sings, does magic. He's a really talented guy, and we're really excited to share this interview with you. 41 was the first of his movies I watched, and I loved it, so I immediately searched out his other work, and then we were lucky enough to get him to come onto the pod and talk to us about uh, all of his work. Do you guys have any other opening thoughts before we get into it, or...? I mean, it was a real rabbit hole situation because you found 41, told us we should look into this. And then it was like, bing, bang, bop. We're now watching five movies by this yeah. guy and loving all of them and, you know, actively pursuing the dude. So if you like movies, he's got something for you. Like he's right. got a breath of work. Yeah, yeah very we much talk, so. We yeah. talk and about how he has different genres too. So like Taran said, if whatever type of movie you like, he has one of those, I feel like got horror he's got sci-fi he's got family movies and we get into all of this in the interview it's i had a blast talking to him i think we all had a blast he was a great guy i think y'all are gonna really enjoy listening to this and if you're into shorter stuff he's on tiktok so i mean really really a man of the people yeah so also yeah. follow on tiktok yeah like gardner said he was great he was very thorough so without further ado here's our interview with glenn triggs we are joined now by a very special guest, Glenn Triggs, writer and director known for movies such as Cinemaphobia, 41, Apocalyptic, uh, and The Comet Kids, all of which are currently streaming on Amazon Prime, YouTube, or both, is here with us today. Uh, Glenn has just finished his newest feature film, Dreams of Paper and Ink, which will be premiering at festivals this month and should be available soon. For listeners, Glenn is in Australia, where it is 10 a.m. on Thursday. He has traveled through a hole in a motel bathroom in order to talk to us here in America, 14 hours in the past. Um, Glenn, we are so happy to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for reaching out to me. It's, uh, yeah, it's great. Um, so how did I do on the intro? Is there, is there anything I left out that you want to mention? Or 
Uh, I th- a lot of my films uh, are actually available on a lot of other platforms. We've, we, I think we've had two DVD releases in the States. So um, I think Ap- Apocalyptic was renamed to be called Apocalypse Cult. Um, and that's available on DVD um, in the States right now. I think you'd buy it, or you could buy it at one point at um, Walmart and uh, Best Buy and all that sort of stuff. And same with the Comet Kids. Comet Kids had a release over there too. So, um, yeah, they're, they're out and about. They're, it, they can be somewhat hard to find sometimes, but they are around. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I was going to say I watched Apocalypse Cult on uh, Tubi. Yeah, the film that my films seem to pop up in really random places sometimes. So I've, I've been lucky to have two films screen on like our national TV here in Australia, um, which is kind of strange because it should have been a huge deal when it happened, uh, like say ten or fifteen years ago, when like regular TV was like a big thing. But now streaming seems to be the the main thing for what people watch. So um, yeah, but it was still fun. It was fun to see it on on regular TV and a lot of people tuned in, which is really cool. Yeah. That's still an accomplishment in itself. And very, like you said, very cool to have it. It's, on. I kind of, I mean, I know like old TV, like the way is, you know, dying, but I like the kind of communal experience of everybody tunes in at the same time and checks it out. That's exactly right. I, I remember when I was younger, I, w- I worked at a video store for years and I would come home with videos, but I would always watch regular tv first just because i wanted to feel part of yeah like you said that communal experience that you know everyone else is watching the same thing at the same time which is quite fascinating uh, psychological it's a psychological thing i'm sure but yeah it's good (laughs) it fuels discussion as well which is always good because you want people to be talking about what they've seen especially when you're putting in so much effort to get it out there you know you want people discussing it right for sure for sure so you've just wrapped your newest project, Dreams of Paper and Ink. That's very exciting. Congratulations on that. Is there anything you can tell us about when it will be available for audiences in general theaters um, or even on streaming maybe uh, further down the line? It will be most likely the end of this year. Um, there's a lot of festivals that we've submitted to and a lot of the festivals have a thing where you can't have a movie released um, like anywhere before they screen it at their festival. So we're sort of waiting for these festivals to sort of... Um, hopefully get on board with the film so that um, that's a, a long waiting process. Unfortunately, we've got to wait a few months for a lot of the big festivals to be announced. So there's a few here in Australia being announced this month. So fingers crossed we get into some, but I've, I think we're submitted to about 20 festivals. So we're just sort of waiting for that. And then as soon as that all sort of clears up and um, whether we do get into some or not get into some, um, there'll be a, a, a proper release of the film, um, which will most likely be sort of small cinemas here in Australia and then uh, all the streaming and DVD stuff um, internationally after that. Awesome. Well, good luck with all of those festivals. Obviously, we think that I think that you'll be it'll do well, obviously, I'm going off of bit. your past work. Yeah, no, we're I mean, well, we have some more specific questions about it, but we're based on the trailer and everything. Very excited to see that movie. Yeah, we, we sort of tried to make sure this film was a very festival friendly film. I think like with the Comet Kids, that was a, a family adventure movie. And that was very much um, aimed at kids, basically. And it, it did very badly at festivals. I think we got into one, you know, one festival out of, you know, 30 festivals or something crazy, um, which isn't great. So <laughs> so I sort of tried to make something very unique and original and personal with Dreams of Paper and Ink. And I think that audiences tend to relate to that better than um, than a sort of... Because we, we, with the Comet Kids, like, we made that to look like an American film and to sound like an American film. Um, but it wasn't American at all. It was all Australians putting on accents. So um, that was uh, quite an interesting um, process to go through. But um, 
yeah, Dreams of Paper and Ink. I, I have always had an issue with Australian accents. I just, I don't like the sound of an Australian accent in films. I think it's just, it just doesn't sound right for some reason. It's, it's almost like hearing a, an odd instrument in a, in a symphony. It just, it just, for some reason, it just, it needs to have a particular sort of sound for films. And that's where Dreams of Paper and Ink, uh, the decision was made to have no dialogue in the film because I didn't want to have people trying to put on accents to make it more international. And I didn't want to make an Australian film in that sense. So yeah, we decided to just have no dialogue at all. And that sort of, and that, it's that, that's what makes it more unique as well, that no one says any words throughout the whole film. So um, yeah, that's where that film sort of, that, that's basically why that decision was made, just a, a marketing thing. I just thought it would be more interesting. And at the same time, uh, dialogue just got in the way. Every time I wrote something for the film that had dialogue, it just didn't sound right. I couldn't sort of figure out ways to make people say anything. And then it was as soon as I thought of the idea to have no dialogue, um, that's when it was. It just became a really fun experience to try to figure out a way to tell a story with no words. Is, I'm going to respectfully any... disagree on the Australian accents. And well, yeah, I'm a fan. <laughs> you know what? The majority of Australians actually do not like Australian films. Um, there, there is a there is a, a market for it here. Um, but the, the biggest problem in Australia is that we have sort of one, one, one or two sort of, um, major film companies that, uh, you know, uh, fund a lot of the movies that get made. I think overseas, like you've got heaps of studios making films, you know, like, like, uh, like Fox and, um, Universal and everything, but over here, we've just got one. Um, and they always choose very sort of, I don't know, sort of like boring sort of stories. I don't really take chances with things much at all. So, um. Yeah, unfortunately, there's, there's a couple of breakthrough films that come out, but at, usually at the cinema, Australian films just don't do that great compared to what's out there, especially from the States. Like, that's our biggest, you know, you go to the movies and there's nine out of 10 movies are American um, in our cinemas here in Australia. So, um, which, and I, I, we've just grown up that way. We're just used to the American accents in, in yeah, films. Yeah, it's tough to compete here, with is, that hegemony. Yeah, exactly. I didn't realize how much, I guess... American films were shown in Australian theaters. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much everything like that. It's, it's kind of rare to get an Australian film, to be honest. Like if you go to the cinema, it's rare to actually see one on the, on the board to choose from. Um, and cinemas at the moment are just, uh, not doing great at all because of COVID. Like we're, we're actually in a lockdown right now. We're like Victoria, where I live in, in Melbourne. Um, we're locked down for the last, I think seven days and they've just announced another seven day lockdown. So everyone's just staying at home. So cinemas are just not doing great at all. They're just really struggling. So, um, fingers crossed that they, uh, let us out at some point, but, um, yeah, at the moment we're all stuck at home. So, which is, I actually don't mind to be honest. I've got a lot of work that I can do, which is great, but, um, a lot of people are struggling. We get you on here now because of the lockdown up. I'll, I'll take yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've got a lot of free time, which is, which has been good actually. So, yeah. So as far as the, you were talking about how there's no verbal dialogue in Dreams of Paper and Ink, is there any little teasers that you can give us about how that kind of plays out on screen? Yeah, it works a lot better than you think it would. Um, and a lot of people, I've, I've tested the film with about 100 people so far, um, just little groups. I've got a sort of a home cinema sort of set up in my studio and, um, and people come and watch the film and um, everyone's very surprised at how well it plays with no dialogue they sort of forget that there's no dialogue it's not doesn't sort of stand out which is sort of unexpected to be honest i thought that people would be very much um aware that there's no dialogue but people are just they just go with it and just the emotions and there's music in the films a lot of music a lot of songs um and the characters sing there's two songs that get sung in the film 
Um, but it, I kind of feel like it doesn't classify it as dialogue because it's it's sung. It's there's a melody to it. So there's I think you can, you can hear chatter in the background and stuff. And there's a couple of like sort of words you can possibly make out. But yeah, overall there's no conversations. There's no no speaking at all. So yeah. Was there any point in production or during the writing process where you kind of went back on the idea or you thought maybe I will include some dialogue or was it just once you got into it, never. it was very liberating. No, never. It just, yeah, it never, it was never an issue at all, to be honest. We never, um, sorry, I'm just going to turn my, my heater on. It's quite cold down here at the moment in Australia. Um, uh, we never went, never went back on the idea at all. Actually, it was never even, never even thought about. It was just, um, it was, and it was written in such a way that it's, it's quite sort of, um, it's it's a very sort of cinematic film, I guess you could say. It's very poetic in some degree, even though there's no there's no poetry spoke, obviously. Um, it's uh, it's very visual and it's just it's very sort of emotional and personal. So there's no yeah, there's no need for dialogue really, which is good. And a lot of people and when people watch it, they're like, it it didn't need like a lot of people after they finish seeing it, the first thing they say is it didn't need any words, and they and they agree with how it how it played. So which that's got to be vindicating for sure. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I'm surprised that you to hear you say that it plays out better than people would expect because I when I saw that that's what it was going to be about or that it was going to include no dialogue, I was interested in it. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, this will have an issue playing out. I was thinking, oh, how's he going to do this? And I'm very intrigued about where it's going to go because of that. Yeah, I think um, it's it's a good selling point for the film, I think, because people, as soon as they hear there's no dialogue, there's a very small, very small handful of films that have no dialogue. And so this one, um, yeah, it sort of, it sort of, it, it, you know, it sort of uh, excites people, I guess, because they think, oh, what's, like, yeah, exactly, like, how are you going to pull that off? Like, how's that going to work? So, um, right. would, would yeah. you classify it as a silent film, or? No, I think silent. Well, that's it's a good, that's a really good question, actually, because um, silent films still have music in them, don't they? I guess and sounds, um, but I get. I don't even know how to answer that question, to be honest. <laughs> so, so Dreams of Paper and Ink doesn't have like the title cards, you know, coming up with all the. No, no. We, well, it's well actually it does. There's a lot of it's about a, a, an elderly um, typewriter, like a, a novelist, and he's got this typewriter throughout the film, and he um, he writes things, and sometimes he has to explain bits and pieces throughout the film. So essentially, it kind of does has some sort of title card um, in there. And there was a when we did screen the film, I think like the. Uh, some people there were some scenes where people didn't understand who some of the characters were and that was quite shocking to me because I was like oh no like they need like that's very important that you know who that character is and people got very confused and so um I had to just spell it out with like you said title cards on the typewriter that he literally just says who the person is and at first people were like uh did you need is that's a bit obvious like do you need to explain it that clearly and then I said, well, people, without it, people had no idea what was going on. So it, ha it had to be spelt out in that sense. So, um, yeah, that was interesting. Very interesting process. Very long process of testing the film. Because um, I never tested the Comic Kids film. I sort of learned a lot of stuff from the Comic Kids, actually. That was quite a big sort of production uh, that went on for about three years. And we never tested the film at all. And then when we screened it for an audience, people laughed in bits where they should have been crying basically <laughs> and it shocked me i was like oh no like you know I, it, just because you said a line and it, and it didn't work and i'm like oh I, you know i should have really you know cut that line out or, you know just little things like that so with this film i made sure i tested it with a lot of people just to make sure it worked um 
the best it can work. And they picked out mistakes that I had no idea were even in there. Little things that like, there's a, I think there's some guitar and singing in the film. And one of the actors was left-handed. And then in another scene, he's playing a right-handed guitar and it goes back and forth. So I had to fix that. Something I never noticed at all when I was editing. So, um, yeah, it's good. It is good to test films, but not to, not to change the film because what people say, but just to sort of iron out things that are, that your brain just doesn't see because you're so close to it, which is good. So going off that, it being maybe a silent film, maybe not a silent film. You said you want to do different types of movies, different genres of movies, and you've kind of done, you know, you started off with a horror slasher movie. You did the sci-fi movie in 41, a children's coming of age movie, like you said, with the comic kids, found footage, like guerrilla style filming with apocalypse, apocalypse cults or apocalyptic, depending on where you are. (laughs) Um, So is there, what about, What's coming next after Dreams of Paper and Ink? I know you like you just you're you're just finishing it with it, but is there a genre that you kind of want to jump into next? Is there something you need to tackle that you feel like? Yeah, there's a script I've had um, for over ten years now, which it's a very large project, um, and it's it's listed as in development on IMDb. I think at the moment it's called, it's called The Dark Epic because my company's always been Dark Epic Films. So I thought I'll make a film called The Dark Epic. And um, it's a huge, it's a huge science fiction film. Um, I really, I do love science fiction, and I've got a story that I think is, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit time travel. It's actually, there's it's got a bit of time travel in there, but it's a lot of, um, a lot of space stuff in there and all that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a really huge project. I'm not really sure how to make that film yet, um, but I do have. I'm halfway through a script. I've got the whole story, but I'm halfway through the script. Um, I've got another script as well, which is a comedy, which is finished. And that's about a film critic, which I think is actually quite good, but I need to ship that off somewhere else to get made. I don't think I can personally make that film myself. But The Dark Epic, I really want to tackle that next. But that's I know I know how difficult that film is going to be, and I'm kind of dreading the workload from that. But um, I'll most definitely make that at some point over the next couple of years. That's sort of where I'm headed to next. Um, but Dreams of Paper and Ink was a very small, very small, very easily um, made film because it was just a few actors and no dialogue, so we didn't have to worry about sound sound always sort of slows things down on a production so um yeah so yeah hope, hope, your science fiction is where i want to go back to basically um possibly horror i don't i think i'm sort of done with horror a little bit i've sort of made a few horror films um and there were heaps of fun at the time um cinemaphobia was possibly one of the most fun times i've had making a film only because we shot in a cinema for 40 i think it was 41 days that's where the, the title 41 sort of came from because we ah, shot for 41 days for cinemaphobia and it was just a whole bunch of us in a cinema uh basically starting filming at 10 o'clock at night till two in the morning sometimes for a couple of a couple of months um and that was lots of fun heaps of fun the film uh it hasn't really done that well um you know uh with an audience necessarily but um it was a lot of fun to make that film. I actually watched it today. I wanted to save one of your movies before we got you in here, and I right, right, thoroughly right. enjoyed it. I, I mean, for for it's, me, it's I'm, silly. I don't it's even really silly. like <laughs> horror thriller slashers, but I mean, I kind of liked the interpersonal vibes I was getting out of the characters. I enjoyed it. It was, yeah, it was kind of meant to be. I, I, every time I make a film, I kind of draw from a few particular films for each project. So, Cinemaphobia was very much like a Halloween. I wanted to make something sort of Halloweenish, meet sort of the Breakfast Club type of, you know, like a lot of teenage chatter sort of thing. I, I would make that film pretty differently 
now. It's it's a bit silly. It's, it's probably a little bit too silly in some bits, but it was more of a, a comedy horror, I guess you could say. Um, I did the soundtrack for that film myself, and I'm pretty proud of that soundtrack because it came. I think the soundtrack's quite good on it. I was I it's, wanted to ask about that. I thought it was great too. Yeah, we have a question. It seems about like how... a hard part, you know, of doing indie film work is scoring a movie. And if you did it, it, it was really difficult. It was really difficult. It took me um, a few months to score that film. I think the final track in the film is my favorite. The bit when Grayson's character sort of realizes that, um, oh no, sorry, the audience starts to realize that he sort of set up the whole thing so he can make his horror film, which isn't necessarily that original, which I've come to, to learn. But um, yeah, the soundtrack was, it was a lot of fun. I used a program called Reason, which is, uh, you kind of have to mix a lot of um, like, I don't even know what they're called, like these music boards together with cables, uh, on the screen and they've got some really fa fascinating sound effects on there and echoes i used a lot of probably too much reverb in the soundtrack it's kind of like it's just all reverb um but halloween like john carpenter's halloween soundtrack was like the biggest inspiration for that just a really simple sort of melody um with some cool sounds so that was yeah a lot of fun heaps of fun to make like I, and i just love the process of those that sort of stuff because it's um it's just fun like you guys do you guys make films yourselves are you guys into into video work yourselves yeah so i actually uh studied it pretty heavily in school I, I mainly focus i tried to focus on screenwriting but i did work on some student productions and stuff and i right now i do video content for like real estate and all, all kinds of other stuff so i do a lot of shoots and stuff haven't haven't worked with trying to score my own stuff <laughs> just yet i'm not so it's musically I, I do i actually do a lot of real estate work as well in australia like because the movies that i make don't necessarily make that much money so um, I'm always I'm doing real estate work and I did wedding videos for many years and all just all sort of video all sorts of video production work which I really love but yeah um, yeah creating a, f a feature film is just the it feels like the pinnacle of a video production for me anyway because it's just it's just so much work it's just it's such a workload but um it's and it's it's funny because I know a lot of filmmakers locally down here that they never get their films finished because it's it is such a workload to get through really. You sort of get right near the end of a production and there's just, I think the hardest point of the film is just right near the end of um, uh, sort of shooting, obviously, but um, yeah, pick up, pick up shooting, I find the most difficult because you just, by the time you get to that point, you're so tired from shooting the film. You don't want to go back out and have to shoot more stuff, <laughs> but right. you have to sometimes. And it's just like, a, oh, do I really have to shoot this stuff? And that was what happened with Dreams of Paper and Ink. Like we had uh, the whole film shot and I was, I had some ideas to add a few more scenes into the film and I just couldn't be bothered. I was just like, I've just the film's perfect as it is i don't need to add these extra shots in it doesn't need an establishing shot of a house we can just cut straight to the interior um things like that i was just yeah i just it, it is very exhausting work but um as long as you've got what you need then i think that's the main thing yeah and it sounds like maybe you have like the opposite uh problem that i have where i especially when i'm sitting and editing too long like if i'm working on a short or something i just get to the point where i'm just I'm done with it. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to see this like ever, but I know I have to, you know, finish it and put it out. Yeah. I, f I find I edit in like a very sporadic amount of time. Like I, d I will just edit for like an hour and then just walk away and do something completely different. I'll like go to go do some exercise or play guitar or just do something that's not editing. And then sometimes, yeah, like you, you feel like you're banging your head against the wall because you're just over it and um, you think it's awful and you have to just go to sleep. Sometimes just need to go have a sleep. And then go back to it, and then you realize that, oh, okay, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I can fix it. You've got like a new sort of set of energy the next day, I find, and you can just go through and just fix up things that weren't working and stuff. Right. But, um, it's a, and I find too, what's a really interesting thing is every time I screen any of my films anywhere, I'll screen the film and I'm immediately depressed because I know that it's over. 
like the the, the journey that the traveling is done and it's happened the last few films and i kind of really hate it i love the process like i'm absolutely in love with the process but as soon as it's over as soon as the titles roll in the cinema it's like okay oh well that's it and it's um it's quite depressing i kind of <laughs> i kind of hate it which is weird yeah i get the same way when like i finish like uh oh i've done like plays and stuff in the past and like when the run is over you get very sad you get the glads i think they called them where you're like sad it's right. over you're happy it went well right like if you're yes. proud of it <laughs> at the end like that yeah. you're happy yeah. about but i think for creatives it's just like that's what we want to be doing is we want to be getting out there you're always reaching for what doesn't exist and you're creating that's the thing the whole thing is you're creating something and as soon as it's created and it's actually done that's when you move on to the next project usually because you just and i i can rarely watch my films now like i very rarely go back to rewatch. um every like every couple of years i might put something on and watch it but um yeah it's rare I'm, i just get very much over it because you've worked so closely to it and i remember i think peter jackson said the same thing about lord of the rings like he hasn't watched them since he's made them um which is crazy to think yeah, about that is nuts. <laughs> and he's just That's to say wild. the same sort of thing as me like just doesn't doesn't want to see them anymore well i can't imagine not wanting to watch 41 over and over again and try to you know keep enjoying i mean for me that's one that i know i'm going to continue to come back to so yeah 41's done really well for me like we um i initially entered we, i think we got it we got into and almost won every festival we entered with that film just like with pure luck i think um, it sort of hit a nerve with people i think they sort of um the the whole you know getting a second chance thing and and the twists and turns of that film, people really enjoyed. And you sort of, and the, the elements where you sort of figure out, oh, that's the things that got repeated. Basically, I think people found interesting. And so, um, when that film wrapped at festivals, I think we had a, we were meant to be in cinemas in the states for I think a few months, and the whole thing sort of fell through. It never actually happened. Mm -hmm. And so I got the rights back to it, and I thought I need to do something with this film because no one's going to see it. Um, and I initially put it on, I think like a pirate website or something. I thought I'll just chuck it on pirate, but I just want, I want people to see it. I don't care who sees it. I just want an audience for it. Yeah. Never thought I'd put it on YouTube initially. And then I put it on pirate bay and then I got a couple of comments and people were like, oh, this is actually quite good. And I just didn't think too much of it. I was like, okay, well that's just a couple of people. And then we put it on YouTube and I got up to about 6 million views over about in about a year and people were obsessed with it. Like they loved it. They just, everyone was just almost it almost felt fake sometimes how much people like the fan mail i was getting from it all the time and i still do every day um and then uh, for some reason it got taken off youtube i don't know youtube sent me a thing saying this video is you know against our policies and it got taken down and i was like what why like and they couldn't give me any answers so i ended up putting it back up again like a year later it got up it's up to i don't know what it's at, at the moment like a million and a half or something sort of views mm-hmm um, and it's still just getting the same sort of audience. People just really relate to it and really, really enjoy it. And it was, and at the time, it was the most personal film I'd made because it was about things that I was always thinking about. And but yeah, I haven't. I've, I think I've watched it maybe a year ago, possibly. I think since, but that's probably the first time I've seen it in five years. You said at the time. Would you say, what would you say is more personal? Oh, dreams, dreams, of, dreams of paper, dreams and, of paper and, ink. and ink. Dreams of paper and ink. Yeah, that's because I wanted to. Um, because I, because of how well Forty One did with the audience, I think people related to it so well because it was so personal. And I think it's and I sort of I wasn't faking too much stuff about that film, other than obviously I can't travel through time. It's not my thing, but the the, the wishful thinking and the dreams of that 
were like that. So when I made Dreams of Paper and Ink, I made I said this can be as let's make this as personal as possible. And I've literally copied exact moments from my life. There's about ten like exact moments from my life that are in the film. And I think audiences just for some reason it just it just people know. People know when you're telling the truth and when you're being honest about stuff. And I think audiences um just you just appreciate that more. You can notice that sweat equity of like, you know, you can feel the love when you put into a movie for sure. You can yeah, ex exactly. It's just artificialness just... if somebody's not doing it or if they are doing it for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, I really aim to make it as personal as possible. And um, it is, it's very super personal. And it's, uh, and my, I think my wife, she's watched the film like six times now and she never watches my films. Like she's, <laughs> I think she's never, she's seen Cinemaphobia once and she hated it. Um, she thought 41 was so, so, and she's, and she helped out a lot on the comic kids actually, but she, um, probably only watched that once or twice, but she, uh, yeah, she sat through dreams of paper and ink about six times and she wants to watch it again. So that's a, that's a good sign, I guess. I, I hope <laughs> so, Yeah, one person wants to see it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I think that you can count the three of us into, uh, wanting to, or being excited to see Stoke. it. Um, yeah, very, very much so. Um, going off of 41, do you mind if we, can we talk a bit, a little bit about like specific scenes and, um, like a little yeah, bit yeah, more, yeah, sure, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I think you've mentioned in the past that the dinner scene in 41 was a scene that kind of stood out to a lot of people um, when they watched it. When you're writing a scene like that, is it a difficult scene because you're trying to, like you're explaining a science that behind something that's not really possible or maybe is possible, but that we don't think is possible as of now. Um, really theoretical. Yeah, right. Is it hard to write something like that? No, not, not, not at all. It was actually very easy to write. The, 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 what was difficult to write with that film was the the structure of, the film and what was going to happen um, in big, like, I guess in the, um, the different acts. And so um, I remember when I first wrote it, there was a scene at the start where Aiden was in a car park. And then I think a different version of his ex-girlfriend came to visit him. And she was like, you know, you need to go back and fix this or something. And I thought that's just getting a bit silly. And so I sort of just, you know, deleted those five pages and just started again. And I did that throughout the film. I sort of just wrote what I, whatever felt right took it back and that so that scene just felt right it was just a scene that just um happened very naturally it was it was meant to be a i guess a homage to the time machine like hg wells's um a time machine uh, the rod taylor film which i have a poster of in the background you might be able to see it on the wall back there somewhere oh no, <laughs> yeah ah, so. there she is i've got a few posters up in here actually but um and so i um yeah it was, it was just easy and there was actually a lot more stuff in that scene that scene was actually twice as long um initially and it had a lot of and what was interesting is a lot of the stuff that i had in that scene people ended up commenting sort of saying things in the comments that i was like oh, i wish i had have put that in now because everyone's sort of talking about that and one of the things was the whole what the question why like the question why sort of pops up a few times in the film and aiden had this whole sort of um, monologue where he sort of basically says that why is just a human question like it doesn't exist out in nature or or whatever, it's just our brains wanting to figure out a why. Um, as a, and, and so that these professors were saying it's a flawed question, basically. You, sh you shouldn't be asking it sort of thing. And I thought that was really interesting, but that was cut out. I, I think it was probably out of focus or something was technically wrong with it for me to take it out because I um, it was a good scene. It was a good bit. But, um, yeah, uh, and and not to bog down on that scene, but when I saw it, I kind of felt like you might have had that conversation with somebody else when you were you know, kind of storyboarding the movie. Am I off base in that? Uh, no, I've, I've always had, I've always, when I chat to my friends all the time, we always talk about, 
you know, like what is time? What is life? Like the, the big questions that I think most people ask all the time, but we really get in depth with, you know, what, what's really going on? Like what is, what is life? Does time even exist at all? I, I kind of have come to the conclusion that I don't think it does exist. I think it's just our brain's way of remembering the heartbeats that, <laughs> like the remembering the, the, the tempo of life. Um, I think that everything is just, it is. Um, I'm, I'm most likely wrong on that, but um, that's just my theory. But um, yeah, we didn't, like I, I was pretty lonesome in how I wrote 41. We did test out the script. I don't know if you've seen the documentary about the film, but there's a, a cold reading series event that we took the script to. And a lot of people in that audience were quite captivated by it, which was a good sign. And so, yeah, it was, yeah, the, the script was, it was easy, hard to find the structure, but easy to write dialogue. I've never really had issues with dialogue. I go to write dialogue all the time. Whether it's good, I don't know, but it's I can write it all the time. I do think it is good for the uh, from what I've seen, especially like going into the the theoretical stuff that you bring up that we were just talking about in that scene, and even in like in that opening scene, uh, they bring up so many interesting things that are relevant to the movie, where they're talking about time and like you were just saying, like does time exist and stuff like that. With that opening scene, were those ideas that you knew the movie was going to be about? Like, were you, did you write that scene at the start when you were first making it? Or was that something that like you kind of had to I, come back to? I think I came back to that. I can't, I think I did. I usually, when I write a story, I usually come up with ideas later and put them throughout the film. And I'm pretty sure that was one of those where I, I, I wanted something quite grand, I guess, or epic. And we had that, that was meant to be a lot, much bigger opening sequence. We meant to shoot all over that we had, camera guys all over the world that just happened to be over there at the time like just friends of people and we were meant to have some footage from India and I think New York that never never happened never eventuated but I was over in Vietnam and shot some stuff there on a holiday and um yeah it was much later and same with the Comet Kids I think the opening shots of the Comet Kids when you see the Comet over uh you know a, a duration of time coming back to earth every I think it's 80 84 years or 85 years um that was um, an idea that I thought of much later. I think I was just sitting on the couch watching a movie one day, and I thought oh, it'd be really cool to show this thing. So yeah, it was a late, it was a later thought. That's the best answer for that question, I guess. Um, and it just, just something, just I didn't really think too much about it. it. Just happened. And then we had friends that were having a baby, and they said you can come and film the birth. I think they'd read the script actually, and they said you can come and film the birth of this baby um, to have in the film. And so I filmed it. It was quite a a raw, um, upfront sort of a shot and, it, and I had to sort of trim it back a bit because people were quite shocked at seeing a full a baby being born at the start of the film so I had to sort of trim that back and that baby's name uh, her name's Charlotte that's her her name now I'm, I'm a godfather so um yeah she uh yeah she's in the film which is great I think you said in I think I believe it was the commentary or it might have been the making of um video the lecture hall scene I think it was like double booked the day that you were filming yeah, there so you that's right like yeah yeah so I think you only had like you couldn't take like multiple takes with a lot of things and the dialogue comes off very like I think you even said it comes off very natural because of that because people are talking in way like it's not the most perfect shot you know what I mean like you're not you're not going over it over and over again and making sure yeah we had I think um Shane who played um I forgot the character's name now isn't that awful the professor like the his teacher Mr. Wirtz his professor who was named after um a lot of my characters are named after people. So Mr. Wirtz was named after it. There's a singer in the in the States called Matt Wirtz. I don't know if anyone's heard of him, but he's, um, I'm a huge fan of his work. So um, he's, yeah, that's where the name came from. 
but he was, yeah, we went, we had a lot of extras turn up that day. We were quite lucky. Um, we had like about, I don't know, 60 people or something turn up for this scene and extras are notoriously difficult to book in. Even with budgeted films, they're just hard to get a lot of people into a room just to sit there for two hours and do nothing. Um, so yeah, we booked out this room and then these, I think these two girls came into the room and they're like, oh, you know, we've got this booked. And we're like, um, uh, no, we've booked it. We've booked it. And they're like, well, you need to leave because we need to sit in here and do some notes. And they had this giant room just for two people. And so we said, just give us 45 minutes. And so they ended up sitting in the background. So they're actually extras in the background, I'm pretty sure, in some of the shots. I can't remember exactly where they are, but they are there. If you see two girls together, that's them. If they're, by, if they're off to the corner somewhere. Um, so, but yeah, it all worked out. And it's, that's when, because I shot the film on a Canon 5D camera. And I was always obsessed with that really sort of shallow depth of field look, because that was the new thing at the time, back in 2011. Like everyone had these you know, like these uh, DSLR cameras and just shooting the, you know, the, the worst sort of depth of field you can get just because it looked cool. And so I was shooting people's close-ups at like 1.4 on like a 50 mil lens, which is just stupid. You shouldn't be doing that. So I'm trying to pull focus every time someone moves their head like forward a tiny bit or back a tiny bit. And that whole scene is just full of really bad focus. So if you watch it carefully, it's just the focus is just awful. So, but that's just what happens. That's <laughs> the mistakes you learn from, I guess. I think that it definitely, when you're watching it, that's not what you're paying attention to into that, in that scene. The, I think you as maybe oh, the, yeah, the creator are, are like, it worries you, but I don't think that the viewer is focused on that. They're more just getting into the ideas of the movie because it starts interesting right away. You know, it's not a slow, um, the ideas right away, it throws you right into very interesting topics. And um, it feels like a happy accident too. Cause you're like, kind of feels like you're in the room with them looking around, well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know um, with uh, the the biggest inspiration for 41 was a film called Field of Dreams. I don't know if you guys have seen Field yeah. of Dreams. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. Just like the most perfect sort of film. And I use that as a template. And I know that at the start of that film, basically you hear the voice in the cornfield within the first, I think, 60 seconds or something. So I wanted to make sure that this, this 41 took a little bit longer, but it took it, it was a few minutes in the film before you realize that there's another version of himself. Um, so I took I took cues and pacing cues from from Field of Dreams, for sure, for that film. That's interesting that um, one of the questions I was going to ask was if there was time travel movies that had influenced you when you were making 41, I wouldn't have guessed that Field of Dreams. That wouldn't have been the first movie that I had guessed. That was the biggest inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, that was the biggest inspiration for the whole film. Yeah, I think uh, The Time Machine was the other one. Um, I remember loving Memento back in the day. Like, Memento was a great time travel film, very um, fragmented sort of film. Um but yeah, Field of Dreams is pretty much, yeah, like that's, and I think we use a lot of Field of Dreams music, like James Horner's score was the temp track for that film for a long time before we had Heath do the soundtrack for it. Um, so yeah, Field of Dreams, that's the, that's the one, that's the one. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so this one is a very specific question, and it might even be a silly question, but I need to ask it because it's something that my dad pointed out to me on our first viewing of it. So in the interrogation scene with Aiden, he gets punched by one of the cops and the other cop is sipping the coffee and he kind of winces and it's like maybe it was the coffee was hot and it spilled on him, but it also potentially looks like he's getting injured from Aiden getting punched, kind of like we saw earlier that Aiden get hurt. So is that, was there ever something like, is that like something you were thinking of? Or was Glenn, Glenn Hancock's played, I think it was a, was it police officer one? I can't remember what I credited their names as, but um, he, that was just him just acting the scene. He's just, he's a really great actor and he, um, he's also in cinemaphobia. And he just, 
he just made that he just made that up as he went. He was just like, Oh, he's getting punched. Ooh, like it's just it's kind of just a reaction. That's what Yeah. That's my understanding of it. Um mm. but that's a very good point. Like, is it yeah, is is it Aiden older? I'm not sure. That's a I'm, I'm thinking maybe Aiden is attacking the cop in another life. But if that's him acting, yeah, yeah. I'll take it because I like the way he well, acts. Yeah, we we had a really interesting um thing happen in the film. Keith, who um is the older Aiden, the motel, spoiler alert, but the motel manager character. When we were filming at the motel, he stood on the balcony and he was just watching it shoot and we never planned for him to be in the shot. And because the camera, the, the, lens, the um, screen on the camera is so small, when I was filming, I didn't even see him up there. And so when I got the footage back, I'm like, oh, he's standing up in the corner. Like he sort of ruined the shot. And then I thought, hang on a second. What if he was like watching like that sort of, it, the idea of that came up later. It wasn't like in the script at all, I don't think, of having him always there. So every time you see younger Aiden and... um. Is it Lauren? Is that, is that her name? He's, he's yeah, I yeah, I believe so. Yes, yes. When you see them together, he's just in the background, just watching. And that was just a, a just a happy accident, like I said before. It was just a, it just happened to work out that we just used that. Just as I said, he was just he was just there the whole time, always watching them, sort of thing. Um, just got lucky, got very lucky that Keith just didn't realize that he was in frame. So that's a that's, that's a cool extra layer, though. Yeah, that's wild. That I totally that thought plays so I was well. like, man, he's a genius. This is all intentional. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't the story. And initially, the the ending of the film had to be it had to explain a lot, but not spoon feed it to you. And um, we had the issue where it was far too cryptic initially, like the ending with the golf ball and the grandma and this and that. It was just too people didn't get it. People were like, oh, that's that's good. I thought, yeah, okay, that's. Okay, that that's that was their reaction. They were just kind of confused but happy to see it. And then I had um, Fiona, who sort of produced the film as well. She just had a few ideas to take a few frames out and just overlap a shot here and do just a couple of very minor editing things. And all of a sudden, people were like, "Oh wow! Like this is that's amazing! Like that he was he was there the whole time. That's him older." And it just it worked a lot easier. But um, yeah, forty one was never fully planned out a hundred percent from the start from the script. It was. There were ideas as we shot, after we shot, that just made it work the way it did. I'm just lucky that I just saw them when they were in front of me and just made sure that we used those ideas because you could easily have just went, no, nah, I like just cut him out of the frame. We don't need him in the frame. Um, just sort of worked worked with the mistake and it ended up working really well. Now, how, how many of those did you have to go back and reshoot though? If you had some nice little coincidences, but in terms of filling stuff in, you know, did you have to go reshoot any shots to string it together I know we, we initially had um a different actress for lauren i know that that's in the documentary we talk about that that was a really difficult thing to go through actually so um had another actress and we rehearsed with her for months with her and chris and um she yeah for, for whatever reason we decided to shoot and just realized that the chemistry just wasn't there um in the way that we wanted it to be there and their scenes were just it just wasn't flowing the way that we we thought it would unfortunately so i just had to yeah we had to go back and reshoot i think it's only one day it's only one day of shooting but we had to go back and recast and then reshoot um which is weird really weird actually but it worked out for the best but yeah that's the only thing i can think of from 41 anyway um we shot probably more stuff was cut out than was reshot i'm pretty sure not too much was reshot i don't think i don't think yeah, I'll yeah. give you that. That's the good planning. Then I mean, you said it wasn't as planned as others might think, but if you didn't have to go back and catch anything back up, that seems pretty good to me. No, no, and forty-one was a pretty we um, 
another thing in the doco too like we talk about how that the initial time traveling method was meant to be he goes through like a mirror in a bathroom and when he goes through the mirror the room is upside down for no particular reason just because it was going to be cool and we were, we almost built that but we came very close to building this set that was going to cost about five thousand dollars on like you know a, a four thousand dollar movie sort of thing um and so yeah that almost happened but luckily it didn't we just went with something a lot more simple um but uh yeah little things like that happen along the way you sort of have bigger ideas that you don't necessarily need to need to do you kind of you brought up Glenn Hancocks, who was in both Cinemaphobia and Forty One. He was my favorite character in Cinemaphobia. He's his like you said before. It's kind of a horror comedy. It's I thought it was the sandwich he makes at some point. <laughs> it's yeah. gnarly. His him doing like the self defense in like by himself in the room. It's all it's all great. But you've kind of yeah. worked with multiple actors on different movies. I'm thinking of there's him and there's um. I'm sorry, David, I don't want to mispronounce his name, uh, McCree, McCray? I believe. McCray? Okay. Yeah, yeah. McCray, um, yeah, yeah. Who both are great. Is that something that you, do you like working? Like, do you plan on, like, kind of, like, getting a group of actors that you continuously put in your movies? Like, I know Chris, uh, who plays Aiden, is, was a small part in uh, Apocalyptic as well, but... Yeah, Chris is also... I've actually become, like, like best friends with Chris. Like, I remember the, when Chris, he's the lead from 41, when he came into audition... Um, as soon as he left, I said to my wife, I'm going to be friends with this guy, like for the rest of my life. And she was like, eh, yeah, right, whatever. And I just was at it. I was like a groomsman at his wedding, like about a year and a half ago. We chat pretty much once a week and we see each other all the time. So, um, yeah, so yeah, Chris was in Apocalyptic. He's also in the Comet Kids. He's, uh, he's in the back seat, kissing his uh, now wife in the back seat of the car in the Comet Kids. Um, he sort of pops up all over the place. Uh, Cameron Box, uh, who I forgot the character's name, but he's in. He gets his head cut off in Cinemaphobia. Mm. Um, he's also in Apocalyptic. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't really necessarily plan to just work with the same actors, but it just happens sometimes that I just I'm writing a character. and I'm like, I know, like David is amazing, and I knew. I think I'm pretty sure I wrote Apocalyptic with him in mind because if I knew how creepy he can be. And with Dreams of Paper and Ink, that there was two actors that I was absolutely in love with, and I. Yeah, it came to a point where I was. I said to myself, if I don't get these actors for this film, I'm not going to make the film at all. It's just not going to happen. Um, and luckily, they both said yes. And one of them is a non-actor. He doesn't act at all. <laughs> He's great. He's like the lead in the film. So um, just get yeah, just just got lucky. But yeah, I don't yeah, I don't necessarily plan to always work. I had a, an, an actor, Grayson Taylor, and he was. Um, He's, he's the sort of lead guy in Cinemaphobia. And um, I shot um, a, f- a bunch of movies with him before I started making sort of bigger films. Um, we did a film called Cinnamon Rain back in the day. That goes for like 50 minutes. It's, I think it's somewhere online. It might have been taken off now. That took me like two years to make. And he was in The Follow as well. It's another film that took two years to make that's I think on YouTube, which is not the best film, but it's it's got some interesting ideas in there. And then it goes for about, I think, four, 50 minutes or something like that. The follow's an easy watch. Um, I wouldn't say it's not the best. I, I recommend it. It's a quick watch and it's good. Yeah, I did the sound. That, that was, it was just a learning process. That was just a film where I just had some cool ideas. Um, I wanted to set a film in the future. And I just had, I don't even know where those ideas came from, to be honest. I haven't really thought about that film for a while. But I spent about two years making the follow, which is, that's a long time. That's a really long time to spend on something. But I learned heaps. I learned, um, yeah, all sorts of things just from making that film. So, But I made a lot of films. I made, like, yeah, a lot of I think I'm up to like film number nine or something at the moment or feature film number nine and about, I don't know, 60 or 70 short films or something, something stupid like that. So <laughs> yeah, it just, it's just good. For, I just enjoy the process. It's just fun. Like I said before. Well, I think okay. you can kind of tell that you 
how much you enjoy it because you make these making of documentaries and the director's commentaries and you kind of share this with your with your audience which is great for everyone who appreciates you know who enjoys your movies it's awesome to see the behind the scenes things when did you like start doing that what made you want to share so much i mean because again it's like awesome for like when i saw 41 and then was able to go watch a documentary on it and a behind the scenes, you know, a director's commentary on it as well. It's great for the fans. Yeah, I've just, I've just always, I've loved bonus features since I started watching films. I was just obsessed with, um, I think Braveheart might have been the first sort of making of I saw. I was, I was, Braveheart's like my number one favourite film of all time. I'm just obsessed with that movie. And I remember seeing the making of and I was just as inspired by the making of as I was the film. And then I think... I don't remember which film was first. It might have been Luna. I did a short film called Luna that we shot on 16mm back in 2004 or five. Hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. I'll never shoot a movie on film again. It was insane. And I've totally gone blank of where we're going with that one. <laughs> what was I talking about? Luna? Uh, the director's the commentaries? Again? Yeah, sorry, bonus features. Bonus features, yes. So I just became obsessed with bonus features. And then I saw... Um, Hearts of Darkness, which is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's making of Apocalypse Now, which is unbelievable. And I just I just loved bonus features sometimes more than the films. Like, I remember, like, I liked James Cameron's The Abyss, but that um, making of The Abyss is insane. And so um, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but check out that documentary about the making of The Abyss. It's so good. Um, Adding it to and the I list. just really liked documentaries about And then I saw American Movie when I was younger, that the uh, documentary about... Mark Borchat making Coven. I don't know if you guys have seen American Movie, but I love American Movie. That is <laughs> it's like fantastic. It's my favorite docos of all time. It's just it just keeps giving. You can just keep watching it. It just always gives you something more and new and fresh. Um, so that I just yeah, I just love that the the filmmaker sort of the story of the filmmaker just trying to make something. And and the more indie it was, the better. Sometimes um, I always hated docos where it just made it look too glossy and lovely and, you know, nothing went wrong and we're all big movie stars and check out what we did. I love the ones that are like, you know, I had to, you know, sell my house to shoot this shot for this film because I want, I had to have this shot. And I just, um, yeah, I just enjoyed it so much that I just, and I'm, I'm editing right now, actually the making of, um, dreams of paper and ink. We just interviewed uh, almost all of the actors for that. So we're just, um, I'm going through and just editing that at the moment but the making of the comic kids was fun that was a lot of fun to make we had a lot of interesting stuff happen on that film so i yeah i just enjoy them i just enjoy them so i just feel obliged to make them because i've got somewhat of a story to tell about the film i guess yeah no they're always interesting and you said in this actually might be might have been in your the video on the how you made 41 for five thousand dollars i think it was where you said it's it's one of my favorite quotes. You have to make your own movie because no one else is going to make it for you, which I think is it's true. It's obviously I think true, and it kind of stuck with me. It was there a certain point yeah. in your as a creator that you realized that that you kind of had to just do it yourself if you wanted to really make yeah, your movie. Yeah. I never really dabbled with um, productions that would offer me a lot of stuff to, you know to make films with. So I it was never. I didn't have the other option, basically. It was just like, I have to make this myself. That was never really an issue. But I think the, the more of that quote is more about that don't let other people influence what you think the stories that you want to tell. I think like like no one else is like, you're the only person in the world that's going to make that film that you're making. And if you let other people start to say, oh, I think you should cut out the ending because it's a bit slow or I don't like that character or I think that music's too loud or whatever the comment is. And in your heart, you're like, no, I, I want that music to be that loud and I want that ending to be that slow and I want this and that I think you need to stick to your guns because the audience will get that experience from your film 
Um, and when you start to listen to too many heads talking, it kind of muddles it up. Does that have to do with why you've said that you wouldn't want to direct someone else's script? Because it's fascinating yes. when someone can both yeah. write and direct. I just, I just have no interest in it. And I've, I've always struggled with, um, yeah, working. On, I've, I have done some other people's scripts before and I just have never, my heart's just not in it. I just, and I know it's not. And I just know that I'm just there for the, the paycheck or whatever it might be. So, um, yeah, I've just always struggled with that. So I just, I just find I'm just more, it just, if I write it, I just, I feel I'm, I'm already in love with the story and I'm happy to go out and pursue that love <laughs> with like making the film, I guess, physically. So, um, but someone else's script just, yeah, it just doesn't, it's just not in my, my heart, I guess is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense. If it's, uh, if it's your baby, then you're going to like follow it through and make sure that it's exactly right. Exactly. The vision you had for it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and th that's true because they do some of these films, like they really do feel like your babies, which is kind of weird to say. Um, I've always heard people say that, but it, it's so true because you're so connected to it and it's so like, you just, you know, every little minute thing about a film that you make, like you say, it's like, like your own child, you just know, like every hair that's on their head, you just know, every, every, um, you know, edit down to the millimeter, uh, down to the millisecond sometimes. So, and it comes across to the audience when the author is like really, really passionate and pays that much attention to detail like it just elevates i mean i think i speak for all of us when i say like it just elevates the experience that much more yeah it does for sure yeah um and it's just like uh, like with dreams of paper and ink like where that film was finished a few months ago and then we had some issues with one of the songs in the film so i had to go back and change one of the songs just a copyright thing um and that was really hard that was really hard because i had to find another song for this very pivotal scene and it was um I had to listen to about, I don't know, 4,000 songs or something to find the perfect song. And I found one that was 95% close to the original song that I had. And, but I just, and but because I don't know what, about you guys, when you edit a film that's so large, if you make one little change, you have to watch the film again because you've got to make sure that nothing else has been messed up, that you haven't like left an effect off or like a grade or the sounds, all the sound effects are still, you know, there in the cachet or whatever you've got. Um, and, and even the tiniest little, change like i think i had to i forgot a name in the credits I had to go back add the name in the credits export the film it takes three hours watch the film again another you know hour and a half find another mistake do the same thing again it just goes on for days and days and days and, and um until eventually there's nothing left that's wrong with it anymore and it's it's quite a, it's and even then you don't trust it it's like no nah, i think i need to watch it one more time because there could be something wrong here and you, you don't want to take your eyes off the screen just in case there's something wrong. And every and I had issues with this film with my computer because um, for some reason it was exporting just a white screen for about 20 minutes of the film. And I had submitted it to a festival with that at one point. I didn't realize. And then I watched it and I'm like, oh, no, I've just given them the wrong copy because I haven't. So you're just always going to triple. You have to triple check everything. It's um, it's hard. It's awful. It's awful having to do that. I hate it. Because you don't want to watch the film again. But what's good is if you have other people come over to watch it with you, then it's a whole new experience and then it makes it better. So um, every time I tested out an edit, and I did, I think, about 70 edits on Dreams of Paper and Ink, like like actual changes after the final cut. and just takes Unreal. Weeks. Testament Awful to your grind, weeks. man. I mean, if you're doing it all, you know, you're scoring the movies, you're filming, directing, writing, you're yeah, the it's... final editor too, that's... That's something hard. else. And that's, that's why you sort of just get over it. You just get so over it by the end. You're just like, I don't want to watch it again. And, I'm, and speaking about Peter Jackson again, he's a huge um, inspiration to me too. He, I remember he, 
he hadn't even seen a full cut of Return of the King when they released it. And I can't believe that. Like, it's just crazy. They were in such a rush to get it cut. He'd seen, like, chunks of it, but the whole thing together is a solid film. He hadn't seen it until he went to the premiere to watch it. Oh. It's crazy. Yeah, that's it's wild. Amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> and they were doing reshoots for Return of the King, I think, after it had already won the Oscar. Yes. They were yes. doing, so like, the, additional uh, scenes. The skulls and all that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's yeah. a great example, too, like, of the um, really good in-depth documentaries about how to make films. Like, those appendices for Lord of the Rings are just just like a Bible, like to, to go to for filmmakers. They're so good. Yeah, I mean, the passion definitely, like we said, comes across on, on screen, but you're more than just, like your talents are more than just with movies. You you have videos of you doing magic, you have videos of you doing um, playing music on, on YouTube. Is that, if you were not making movies, would you be creating something else, do you think? Would you be making yeah, music? Yeah, like I, I thought about it. Yes, I thought about it the other day. Like when I was in primary school, I've got these really vivid memories of putting on plays so I'd turn up to school before school would start. I'd get 10 kids together and I would direct a play and say, we're going we're gonna to perform this at recess to the whole class. And I did this like 10 times in, I must have been like over between prep and grade three. So I've always had some sort of weird control, control issues, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> Having to control and just direct people and make sure I'm in control of it all. And so I've completely forgot the question now. Where what your question was? <laughs> no, it's okay. Would we You're just a natural leader. Yeah, I mean that'll oh, be in your biography. Right. Sorry. Um, so yeah, I did. I did um, a lot of when I was growing up. I was really lucky to get to do a lot of stuff. So I did yeah magic and I did circus training for many years. I played tennis. I did like juggling and unicycling. Um, then I did guitar for a while, and then um, I just sort of do a bit of everything. So I kind of I'll edit for a bit today. I just I put I put up a video on TikTok last night and I got like half a million views in like 12 minutes. Uh, not 12 minutes, 12 hours, sorry, which is just crazy. And that's just like a really a really short um, video of me just talking to my son when he was like five months old. So I'm always just putting up just random stuff on the internet, just stuff that I think is funny or interesting. But my films are more like they're sort of like my safe place. Like no matter what silly things I chuck online, I've, I know I can always just settle back into the films that I've done. And that's sort of like my... My, they're my proudest sort of video productions, I guess. But uh, yeah, I just I do a bit of all sorts of stuff. Like I love playing guitar. I play guitar like every day for a few hours. I just am obsessed with guitar. I learned how to play a Tears for Fear song this morning just for the fun of it. So I just enjoy um, just guitar. It's just it's just fun. It's just a you're in the moment. You're completely in the moment when you're playing an instrument like that. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be doing something. I've, just, I've I've got songs on. I put songs out on Spotify about six months ago. I just recorded a bunch of songs and chucked them on Spotify. So I've got oh. like a, a music thing that no one's really listened to but it's there um we'll have to look into that over the... don't it's, they're not that great <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll check you out on tiktok actually... though yeah just look me up on tiktok i don't i'm not sure what the um i oh, know my phone's right there but um yeah it just went crazy on tiktok like my wife put up a video a, a few weeks ago and she got i think like a hundred thousand views and she's like chuffed as with that and then i put up this video of just me and I've, I've got lots of videos that I put on Facebook over the years, but I've never put them anywhere else. So I've just slowly started putting them up on other platforms and all of a sudden you get all these views, which is nice, I guess. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just, I just enjoy the process of creating stuff. I just like, and video for some reason, just, it just, it just tickles my brain. That's the best way to describe it. Um, books, I, I find it hard to watch movies these days. I, I, I can go and I can edit a film for, you know, 10 hours, but I, I can rarely sit through a film these days. I just don't have the, unless it's something very good. Mm -hmm. um, oh, documentaries, documentaries for some reason just seem to interest me a lot more, but um, 
yeah, films. I, I kind of get bored with films. I, I think a lot of films are just yeah. the same thing over and over, unfortunately, and there's nothing really that, that fresh. I have seen a few good ones. I'm trying to think of what I've seen recently that was great, but um, I'm a bit blank on that at the moment. But um, I just enjoy making them. I wonder how much I, of it is just you knowing too well how the sausage gets made, yeah. right? Like sometimes I, I watch movies yeah. and, and I'll get pulled out of a moment just because I'll be like, oh, well, that's an obvious cut and like... <laughs> Da, 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 and like oh they're you know doing this trope i can see that coming a mile away yes i maybe maybe um every so often i do get sucked into films i'm trying to think of i can't even remember what i've even seen recently which i think is like i'm 38 years old now and i think that's just oh, all my friends are the same i speak to my friends and i'm like what have you seen what have you seen and they're like oh i don't know <laughs> they've seen something um, like I watched that DB Cooper documentary the other night about the, I don't know if you guys know the story about that guy that jumped out of a plane back in the seventies with $200,000 and they never found him. Right. Um, that was great. That was a great sort of documentary. I, I like docos. Docos just got that, that edge of it being real. I think I find more interesting true crime. I find very interesting for some reason, but, um, the brain. Yeah. It's very hot. Yeah. Everyone's just obsessed with the latest, um, murder mystery, I guess. Yeah. Have you seen Cartel Land? No. I know. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, though. I think that's a documentary you would probably really enjoy. Just a little. (laughs) Did you guys see The Staircase, Doco? Oh, yeah. That was surprisingly incredibly intriguing. I was just so back and forth on, I don't think he did it, actually. I think he did it. No, I don't think. Like, I had no idea. I still don't know what's going on. But it was just a very long Doco. It had the added element of happening right next to where we all went to school. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We, it, it was in the guy, uh, was in Raleigh and they were doing all sorts of stuff like prep for his trial, like in the university of North Carolina law school. And they're oh, like wow. walking wow. around campus and stuff. So it was like very close to go. home. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah it was just very, very sl- it's, it's kind of, um, it's essentially a boring documentary because nothing, necessarily changes but it's just so intriguing following this character and just what he goes through and um but there's a lot of those dockets like these these murder true crime things are just insane i I thought about there's a story we've got here in australia which is kind of similar to the golden state killer story that you guys have over there in the states yeah um, i'll be gone in the dark series that came out recently which is the best true crime doc i've seen ever i think and we've got a story about a guy called mr cruel um, in Melbourne, and he uh, kidnapped and murdered, I think, one girl, but he kidnapped and uh, assaulted, I think, about five or six other girls, and he's never been found. Um, and that happened very close to where I grew up, and that freaked all of us out when we were kids, and that's just a completely unsolved mystery, which I, I was tempted to look into doing a documentary about that because that's definitely a story that sort of has been told, but not in the way that the, the mass sort of Netflix audience would uh, soak it up and potentially... You know, st- these sort of stories are getting solved now because of how many people are watching all these stories and someone comes forward and all that sort of stuff that happens and all the new DNA stuff they've got. It's just insane. So um, anyway, a bit off track, but yes. <laughs> we do want to be respectful of your time. I know you said you had around an hour, so we'll try to wrap it up with just a, a couple closing questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You kind of just went into one of the last questions that we always ask is, are there any independent filmmakers that you like that we should check out? I know you said you don't remember a lot of things you've watched recently, but also if there's any Australian filmmakers. Yeah, if you're Australian um, peers that might have trouble getting over to the States, we'd love to know. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, 
I'm trying to think of everyone's names. Like, like a whole flood of faces just came into my mind. Then of all these people that I know, I'm trying to think of. Um, there's a friend of a friend of mine. He made a, a film called Trollbridge, um, which just did some festival rounds. Um, oh, is it Daniel Knight? Daniel Knight, I think his name is. I'm going to get names wrong here, so I'm <laughs> pretty bad. But I know a lot of filmmakers, we sort of just all keep in touch. But some made films years ago, some never finished films, some are still making films. But um, I think a lot of people are in the same sort of boat as me. They just sort of, it's, it's difficult to get funding here, in, in, especially where I am in Australia. Um, on these low budget sort of films, like no one really, no one really cares. That's the best way to put it. It's really difficult to get, not much stuff does get made. And if it does, it usually has to have, um, you know, famous actors in it and stuff because that's what they think the audience wants. And I tend to, I agree and disagree with that. I feel like um, audiences don't get a full original experience if you've got the same actor you've seen a thousand times pretending to be someone else. Um, that's why I think I remember loving Jurassic Park when I was a kid because no one was really that famous in it when it came out it wasn't like you know it wasn't like Tom Cruise was in Jurassic Park it was just all these it felt like new people mm -hmm. um, and a new experience and I think that's why it works so well but um yeah there's, there's a lot of I'm trying to think of filmmakers names they've put me on the spot sorry <laughs> no you nailed Daniel Knight you got that Don't one right do you guys have any final questions oh I want to know people? because okay so I I have to I have to ask this one last question about 41 and the scene where Aiden's run across the garage, that's you pumping iron, right? Like, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you cameo in your other films and I just didn't catch it. That's a good question. I have, I, I usually, I end up cutting myself out. Like I did a movie called No One. I'm not sure if you guys have seen that. That's online somewhere. It's a black and white film about a girl who wakes up and there's no one else left on earth. She's the only person and she doesn't know why she's left. And that's sort of where my film stuff started. That was a year 12 film and it won all these awards for, you know, school top arts and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I cameoed in that and I think I cut myself out of that film. I think I cut myself out because I hate seeing myself. So I've cut myself out of a lot of films. I don't, yeah, I'm in 41. I'm not in apocalypse. I'm not in any of the other films. I don't think, but that, that, I don't know if you, I don't know if this podcast will be a video podcast, but if you look carefully behind me, this is the same garage that was shot in. It's now converted into oh. a room. So it's One like, more it, posters it now, was just a garage. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got like. Yeah, it's just like a room now. It's not a um, not a shed anymore. Like it's, it's it's a shed on the outside, but it's a like a studio on the inside. So, but yeah, so yeah, no, yeah. I haven't cam I've only cameoed in um, I think Forty One's the only one. I just I just don't like seeing myself. And oh no, sorry. I mean, I'm in Dreams of Paper and Ink. You only see my arms pick up. I pick up two my kids, in one in one shot. So yeah, show yourself lifting, done. and that's it, right? Yeah, pumping iron <laughs> and picking up kids. We're cool with that. <laughs> So that's, I never thought of that. That's good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm in dreams of paper and ink and my wife's in dreams of, and, and all my kids are in it too, actually, which has been great. Um, and my daughter was in it at one point we shot with her. I think she was maybe six months old or something. And then we had the lockdown. So we had to wait six months to shoot more of the film. And then I filmed her again. And I think she was like maybe 14 months old. So she ages in the film and it's, it's meant to be time has passed, but um, yeah, we're lucky to get to use the same kid for, you know, a two year, gap sort of in the film which is kind of cool so um yeah that's yeah. thank you right on so yeah i think that you I mean you gave us really good answers we, we really appreciate you yeah, appreciate taking the time, the time out of your day yeah, yeah i mean oh no thanks for it's, this is it's great to chat to people that know stuff about the films it's, it's yeah thank you so much watching the the movies watching the documentaries all the behind the scenes stuff is awesome and then just now getting to talk to you about even more of the specifics and about you like 
you know, your, your process and your passion for it has been awesome. Um, it's just, like I said, like the passion really shows through in the films. And I think that's why you get this, um, such a good response from your movies is like, like you said, the authenticity really shows through and, uh, we appreciate it for sure. That's good. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. So yeah, thank you for joining us. It was awesome. Um, remember everyone, Dreams of Paper and Ink will be out soon. Um, it's at festivals now and it will be, or this month it's at festivals and it will be, um, just look for it out later this year. While you're waiting for that to release, go check out his other work. Check out his YouTube page. I really recommend looking at the behind the scenes stuff. Like I said, I've kind of talked a lot about that. It's very cool stuff. Yeah, there's a wealth of knowledge on there. Go check it out. Yeah, thank you. All right. Cool. Thank you. Okay, there you have it. That was our interview with Glenn Triggs. Big thank you to him for taking the time to talk to us. We really thank you, Glenn. It. Yeah, it was awesome, dude. So yeah, I think we got some really interesting answers from Glenn. I really do want to thank him for being so engaged. Like I said at the start, there will be no ratings since we discussing not just one film. But I will say, go check out his work. I recommend it. That wraps up our discussion on Glenn Triggs and the Triggsiverse. Our next episode will be releasing this Tuesday, and we are going to discuss Spiral, the new Saw film. We reviewed Saw and Saw Two on this podcast previously. So go listen to those episodes if you missed them. Spiral is still out in theaters, and it's also on VOD. So go check it out if you haven't already. And we'll talk to you on Tuesday. See you later. See you then. No peace from Tarn? Uh, peace from Tarn. <laughs>